Good evening, everybody. Uh, I have the uh, privilege and pleasure for a, another SRS uh, podcast. Today, uh, we have Jennifer Bauer. She's the chief of uh, spine uh, at Seattle Children's, and uh, we are going to be discussing her prestigious award that she won at the SRS 57th annual meeting in Stockholm. Uh, Dr. Bauer, great to have you this evening. Uh, it's a privilege uh, to be able to talk about your research. Uh, I know you won the prestigious uh, Goldstein Best Clinical Research Poster Award, and I was hoping that you could uh, introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your passion. I've read up uh, about um, a, a lot about you and uh, would like to share it with everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I am at Seattle Children's, as you mentioned. I've been here for a little over five years. And uh, my practice is all sorts of pediatric spine anomalies from the cervical spine down to the sacrum. And so one of the things that we all treat if we treat pediatric spine uh, problems is idiopathic scoliosis. And so that's kind of what has led me down this path to this research project is just trying to figure out the best way to treat our patients, the best way to get them up and going and um, uh, out safely out of the hospital. And so some of my research centers on really specific questions, just basically to look at some patient outcomes and, and things that we can do to ease their time and e ease their perioperative care. Well, I'm familiar with a lot of the ERAS literature that's been coming out for the adult population, but what I found most fa fascinating is you're looking at our younger group uh, children and pediatrics specifically. And um, what, can you give us a little bit more information about what's been happening in the pediatric realm? Is it the same sort of growth uh, in popularity with ERAS programs that we've seen in the, in the adult realm? Yeah, so one of the wonderful things about pediatrics is they do recover probably a lot faster than most all uh, adults. So, you know, we're kind of really just bumping up at, at some point, I think we're gonna, you know, we're becoming asymptotic at, at how much we're able to accelerate their, their post-operative care. Lately, there's been a lot, you know, in the past five to 10 years, a lot in the pediatric literature, uh, especially centered around idiopathic, but now moving forward into neuromuscular scoliosis of how to get these patients uh, safely out of the hospital quickly. And those, different uh, studies have really centered on pain care modalities, mobilizations, things to do for the patient while they're here in the hospital. And a lot of groups have done great work on that, the Atlanta group, the uh, CHOP group. And so they're really on a pretty accelerated post-operative recovery. But what we were noticing was even though we were getting the patients mobilized uh, and trying to decrease all their narcotic pain medicine and do everything we can, uh, that has been shown excellently by other groups, we're still having a lot of trouble with their GI uh, as their delay of getting out of the hospital. They were nauseous, uncomfortable, distended, uh, and obstipated. And so we wanted to look at a way to perhaps focus on that, see if we could improve that to not only maybe limit their length of stay, but also just improve their overall comfort after surgery. One of the things that I loved about this is that you had this pre-operative um, uh, nutritious drink. And I think a lot of the focus right now is post-operative supplementation uh, for nutrition. But, um, you know, pre-operative drinks is something that I personally have not explored. And it was sort of eye-opening to see this. I was wondering, you know, can I use this for my patients? Um, what, what have you found in that realm? Um, what made you uh, consider, who did you partner with to consider a pre-operative drink? 
first, we definitely had to partner with our anesthesiologist. And so one of the lead authors on this uh, paper is Elliot Grigg, who's in charge of our spine anesthesia here. And so it's been great having a very specific spine anesthesia team so that we can push all these different initiatives. Um, so definitely partnering with anesthesia to do, to do this. And then having to prove that it's been done safely in the past in other groups. So there are studies out there that have looked at this preoperative uh, carbohydrate drink in um, uh, lac coli patients, uh, in thyroidectomy patients, in cardiac catheterization patients, and even some lumbar disc uh, studies as well. But as you said, they're all in adults. Um, but that was what gave us the idea to try it and what proved that maybe there's some science behind it as well. And I saw you found some interesting results, but if you could just give us a brief overview of what you found um, in terms of early recovery for our listeners, that would be great. Yeah, so with the caveat that this is still a pilot study, so a pretty small group, um, but we were able to blindly randomize uh, all these patients to uh, drinking this carbohydrate drink two hours before their induction time or not. And then our main outcomes that we were looking for were on one side, return of gut function. So when did the flatus return uh, and when did uh, their time to first bowel movement? And then, and, and then comfort scores. So rating what their anxiety, nausea, um, abdominal pain, uh, various aspects of what their comfort is. And so we had them do that before surgery in the preoperative holding area and then after surgery uh, at, at uh, intervals every 12 hours. And so what we found was that there was a significant early increase in uh, the rate of return of gut function, which we were determining by rate of flatus, which for our patients means a less distended abdomen, able to mobilize a little bit better and, and more comfortable and important that for them to do that for me before I send them home, because I'm worried that if someone becomes truly obstipated, they can become um, you know, uh, not be able to take the fluids that they need, become dehydrated, and need to return to the hospital, which is certainly the last thing that we want. So um, that's kind of why we determine the why we use those end plates, those end points. Uh, and what we found was that again, the earlier return to flatus, and there were a few other comfort scores um, that at least trended positively, usually at about the 24-hour mark in the group that had the drink. I saw the, the specific results on anxiety, and I, I found that very thought-provoking. What are your thoughts behind that? Why, why were there improvements in that realm? It's a good question. I don't know. And the reason we included that was because there had been another study that specifically looked at anxiety, and they actually they found that uh, in an adult population, not non-spine population, that they found improvements in anxiety. One of the potential reasons is because when your body goes into a fasting state, that affects your cortisol level and your insulin response. And so having a different cortisol level is going to increase, you know, all of your stress response and your interleukins and your other stress response um, uh, chemicals in your body. And so perhaps by not allowing the body to get into a true fasted state, that it avoids some of these stress response chemicals and in doing so perhaps has an effect even on somebody's uh, anxiety. Well, I'm, I'm interested in some of the practical tips to implement this. You know, for my patients, when we're doing uh, lateral inner body fusions for deformity correction, uh, multi, especially multi-level ones, uh, we encourage uh, a bowel prep with Golightly. And sometimes it's very hard to encourage patients to 
uh, actually consume this beverage. So how did you get young uh, children to to consume this preoperative drink? Was there a flavoring? I'm just interested on, on how did you convince them to do this? We actually used a, um, a commercially available preoperative carbohydrate clear drink, which is actually the worst part about it is how sweet it is uh, when I tried it. So perhaps that worked. But what we found, uh, we wanted to have something that was truly that we provided to the family and then we knew that they were all taking the same thing and something that has been used before. But what we've now since discovered is that it has the same amount of carbohydrates uh, and it's clear to equal two juice boxes of apple juice. So you would be essentially getting the exact same thing if you also handed them two juice juice boxes. And so that's what we are going to end up flexing to do once the study is done for all of our um, spine patients. And these were ASA1 and ASA2 patients. And what about timing of consumption and and tips to get that coordinated and anything for our listeners on, on if I want to implement this in my own practice, what you would recommend? Yeah, first, absolutely make sure you clear it with your anesthesia group and they're good with it. There is a lot of literature out there to support it and hopefully this helps add to the safety profile. I think that's one of the biggest findings of this is that it was safe. Uh, there, there were no perioperative complications from this. So once you're good with that, then what we did was we had the patients take it on their drive in, which would be exactly for us based on when they have to check in two hours before their induction time. And that is what anesthesia was comfortable with. And two juice boxes is not too much of a volume and it's not harsh. It's something that most of us can drink pretty, uh, pretty easily and readily. So it shouldn't take that much time either to, to drink. So that's what we had our patients do. What about contraindications? Anybody we shouldn't use this in? Again, another wonderful aspect of pediatric uh, care is that they don't have that many comorbidities. So I can't say that I had a single diabetic patient in my cohort. And so I think that's something that uh, would have to be discussed with um, maybe their endocrinologist or the anesthesiologist and, and what that might do to the blood sugar spike during surgery. Well, I love your forward-thinking approach to spine care. I think it's um, the, the rage right now, this concept of prehabilitation as opposed to just working on patients after surgery. What's the future? Where are you going with the study next? And uh, what's the plan to spread it to other groups? Yeah, I think uh, next is to consider starting to spread it to other wider patient populations, even potentially consider patients who have G-tubes. Uh, can we can we provide some carbohydrate nutrition for them as well um, and and see if we can spread it to maybe some more complex patients, which is exactly the trend right now of the ARIS protocols for for pediatric spine. We're kind of all starting in the idiopathic realm and then branching out from there. Well, I want to thank you for your time uh, in participating on Scoliosis Dialogues. Congratulations again on your award. Uh, and uh, thanks for having me. We look forward to seeing future research from you. Awesome, great. Thanks so much. So, hi everybody, uh, this is Terry Ishmael. I'm uh, from the Philadelphia Shrine. We're here interviewing Dr. Noel Larson from the Mayo Clinic as part of uh, the SRS podcast series. Nice to have you here, Noel. So, um, we're actually going to discuss uh, one of her uh, most recent research projects for which she won the John Moe Award for Best Research uh, Poster at the most recent uh, SRS uh, meeting in Stockholm. The title of that is uh, Transforming Electric 
electronic health records of scoliosis patients into clinical registries using natural language processing and computer vision methods, which is a little bit of a mouthful, so I took a look at my phone for that. But welcome, Noelle. Thank you. Really my pleasure to be here today and uh, look forward to our discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start a little bit with, uh, you know, your background. Well, tell us, you know, where are you from and how did you become a pediatric spine surgeon? Wonderful. I am originally from Seattle, Washington, but I've been in Minnesota for the last 18 years, mm -hmm. off and on. I am a professor at Mayo Clinic and primarily have a spine practice in pediatric orthopedics. Um, and I've been involved in a lot of different research efforts over the last 10 years, and I really see um, um, leveraging modern technology uh, as the future for parts of ped spine research. Absolutely. So then like maybe we can segue into uh, this, uh, your most recent project. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Well, we have a new group at Mayo called the Orthopedic Surgery Artificial Intelligence Lab. Um, so I've been working with this group, and their concept is trying to speed the pace at which research is being done uh, by using AI technology. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with uh, traditional research and registries and multi-center studies, and there are a lot of manual aspects. So currently we have technicians measuring cob angles. Um, my study coordinator at Mayo works nearly full-time, and a large um, proportion of her job is data entry. Uh, so gathering records that have already been written down in our electronic health record and then re-entering them into a centralized database as part of a study group or a registry. Um, so is there a way to automate this and lower the cost of research and thereby allow more centers to participate at a lower cost and get more data and produce more information and basically have a faster turnover of, of knowledge? Mm -hmm. As I'll tell you, a lot of this is preliminary, yeah. and we're just getting started in this effort, and I'm really excited to work with partners from around the U.S., because this is going to take more than one center or more than one team to do. But this is kind of our jumping-off project, and our goal was to try and just do some basic things. So one thing was to try to measure a Cobb angle in an automated fashion, um, and we have um, published um, publicly available tools on Cobb angle measurement. So we tried to use some of these publicly available algorithms and found that they didn't work too well. Um, so I think there's probably more work to be done as far as automated x-ray measurement that our lab is currently working on. Um, in addition, um, the other aspect of this is going to be something called natural language processing. So again, right now, if you're doing a retrospective chart review, you're looking for the records and you're trying to review the words and figure out what happened to this patient. Again, can any of this be automated and have a, a computer go through and figure out, was it a scoliosis surgery? Was it a primary surgery? Was it a revision? Um, was the instrumentation anterior or posterior? So a lot of these strategies are being used um, um, by the large um, social media conglomerates and mm -hmm. the internet, um, but let's try and apply some of these strategies to the medical record and see if we can um, make data collection um, more rapid. Um, you can say it's not going to be perfect, and I think that's one reason the automation and the trialing and the training is going to be super important. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And I, I can definitely see that uh, how this will be useful going forward in terms of making uh, research a little bit more streamlined. When do you think that uh, this may come on stream? 
Well, I'll tell you kind of what our group has done so far. The abstract, you know, we submitted back in February. So at mm -hmm. that point, we had just looked at a bunch of op notes and tried to verify whether it was a growing rod surgery, was it a fusion surgery, um, was it a non-fusion surgery, uh, what type of procedure was being done in the op note. And we were actually fairly successful at developing an algorithm that could do that using natural language processing techniques using Mayo op notes. So right. I think really the next step is to work with some other centers and get op notes from other centers and see if uh, these same algorithms will be successful um, in a different facility that's using potentially a different format for their op notes. Um, and then as far as the x-rays go, um, we moved away uh, uh, from um, just trying to do the Cobb angle measurements to start with, and now we're kind of took a step backwards actually. So we have downloaded um, large data sets of x-rays from Mayo, mm -hmm. and again are trying to find that same task. So right. can the AI algorithm be trained to identify um, uh, groin rod surgery, a fusion surgery, or a non-fusion surgery, mm -hmm. um, aka vertebral body tethering. Yeah. And so far we've been really successful at that. Yeah. And then over the summer we also looked at preoperative x-rays and uh, we taught the computer how to differentiate between um, x-rays in a brace versus x-rays out of a brace. Yeah. So um, I, I've really benefited from my colleagues in this OSAIL lab because they're doing a lot of this work. Um, on hip and knee replacement radiographs. Um, so they've done a lot of work, again, um, automating the development of an arthroplasty registry, which they just published in GBJS. Um, so our hope is to do a similar type body of work to automate a scoliosis registry where you have x-rays coming in and then the computer can figure out, is it a pre-op x-ray, is it a post-op x-ray, was a revision surgery needed, um, was there um, device failure, so I think this is all feasible. Yeah. It's just um, building the team that can work together, having access to the data set um, and the images in order to train uh, the AI algorithm. Um, and once we kind of eliminate the first 30 or 40 percent of the steps, there probably will be um, you know, another 50 percent of the work effort that's still going to be manual. Yeah. I, I think we should look for a hybrid system yeah. at first. And then eventually I think we're a ways out from actually being able to do 100% perfect, beautiful registry um, you know, that would all be automated. Yeah. Well, that sounds uh, that's really interesting, and, and I definitely think it'll uh, help to uh, change the face of what we do. Um, we hope to work with SRS. I know SRS yeah. is interested in an app, so I think, mm -hmm. uh, I think all of us realize that technology is the, the future mm -hmm. and that if we can make some friends with software engineers and... Uh, build teams to do this work together, it will benefit our patients. Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think that uh, has covered most of what we want to discuss. Perfect. I'd like to acknowledge my co-authors and uh, really thanks to our, our team that are, that's making this project go forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.